Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel, who's been in office since 2019. In 2014, General Nessel successfully argued for the plaintiffs in DeBoer v. Snyder, which declared that Michigan's ban on same-sex marriage was unconstitutional. The case was eventually combined with others and appealed to the Supreme Court as Obergfell v. Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage across the United States. In 2016, she founded Fair Michigan, a nonprofit organization that works to prosecute hate crimes against the LGBTQ community. General Nessel, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So, General, today we're going to be talking about how many Republican attorneys general signed off on bogus claims since the 2020 election, as well as a letter written to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton earlier this month questioning the legitimacy of same-sex marriage in the United States. But first, you'll be presenting testimony at Sidney Powell's disciplinary hearing before the Texas Bar Association in a few days. So let's get into that. So remember that back in February of this year, you, along with Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson there in Michigan, filed a complaint regarding Texas attorney Sidney Powell, a.k.a. the Kraken, and her wild claims of post-2020 elections fraud. And we should remember, folks, that this was things like Hugo Chavez, who's been dead for several years, was involved in some conspiracy to change votes all the way from the afterlife in Venezuela. You know, she was referred to as the Kraken. This was a person who had sort of drunk the entire bowl of Kool-Aid as far as the election being stolen, went out and said ridiculous things alongside a very sweaty and drippy Rudy Giuliani, you know, was so embarrassing that even Donald Trump didn't want to see her on television anymore. And so now here we are finally, you know, nearly a year later, the disciplinary arm of the State Bar of Texas is holding an investigatory hearing on the fate of Miss Powell's law license uh, on November 4th. It's one step in a multi-step process that could potentially result in her being sanctioned or disbarred. So, General Nessel, what I want to ask you first is specifically, let's talk about Powell's behavior. But more broadly, as an attorney yourself and as an attorney general, I want to get your sense of what does this mean for the legal profession when you have so many people who have sworn an oath to uphold the rule of law, I assume after passing the bar, who are now so willing to sort of take these things in hand and just go against, you know, any sense of reality. So let's start with Powell and how you see that and, you know, how the proceedings down in Texas will work from your mind. Well, I will say about Sidney Powell and the reason that I felt compelled to file this grievance along with Governor Whitmer and uh, Secretary of State Benson, all three of us are attorneys and licensed in the state of Michigan. And, you know, we took an oath. And part of what our obligations are as attorneys, I think people should remember, is that when we see this kind of egregious behavior that is not just unbecoming of the bar of any state, but completely undermines the oaths that we took for our offices. And remember, attorneys are officers of the court. That's what we say when we go into court. We make representations to the judge and we say, Your Honor, 
as an officer of the court, I indicate the following or I submit the following. But it's our obligation legally and ethically to file grievances when we see this kind of egregious misconduct that completely diminishes and undermines our profession and our professional responsibilities. And that's the reason that we filed this complaint, and I filed it on behalf of all three of us. But also remember that the case that this references is the King case, which was filed against Governor Whitmer, as filed against Secretary Benson, as filed against the State Board of Canvassers, and I represent all three of them as Attorney General. So I'm also the lawyer for those that were sued in this incredibly frivolous lawsuit that had absolutely no merit to it whatsoever. And I think not just, of course, diminishes our profession as attorneys, but has completely undermined our system of democratic elections, not just in Michigan, but across the United States of America and is having immediate impact right now. And if you don't mind me talking about this for a second, we're having an issue right now with a local clerk in Adams Township, which is in Hillsdale County, where she is refusing to do her job. She's refusing to undertake the mandatory measures to make sure that the voting machines are ready for the upcoming election. And in fact, there's an allegation that she stole parts of the machinery, parts of the equipment. And it's based on the things that Sidney Powell and others said about Dominion voting systems. So in real time, we're seeing the effects of this. The Secretary of State had to request that the county clerk actually take over elections for this township. And also we have members of boards of canvasser for counties all over the state now that are being substituted with Trump loyalists who already are indicating that they're not going to certify elections if they don't like the winner. We've never seen this before in the history of our state or I think the United States. And you can attribute all of this to the statements that were made by Sidney Powell and her cohorts. So it's incredibly damaging to democracy here in the United States of America. In general, that's one thing that is most concerning to me and I think to us and to so many is all of this only works because we all believe that it works. And we have to all agree on a common system of whether or not it's elections, laws, rules, norms, whatever it is. And now what we're seeing is two distinct belief systems. And unfortunately, they have broken down largely across partisan lines. But, you know, you have to your point, whether or not it's Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood or Rudy Giuliani and these people going in and purposefully subverting that faith, because democracy is first and foremost built on faith and trust. And, you know, as Stuart Stevens, one of our senior advisors said, you know, when he was doing an election in the Congo of all places, is that democracy only works if somebody's willing to lose. That's one of those things where now we see more and more, whether or not it was the California recall or wherever it is, is that people like, well, if I lose, the outcome was clearly rigged. And we certainly saw that in 2020 after Donald Trump lost. But of course, that was no surprise to us because we knew that's what he was going to do. But as you're sitting there on the front lines, too, because this is where the point of a system of rules and the rule of law is that, again, it's an agreed upon set of processes which can be boring, but that's the whole point, right? You don't have to think about them. They're not arbitrary. But now as you sit there on the front lines as the chief law enforcement officer and the chief attorney for Michigan, how do you contend with a group of people for whom these rules and laws don't matter? 
how do you defend against something when you know that they're so willing to do these things? Well, honestly, it's going to be very, very difficult. And that's why I will say that when you look particularly at these swing states that fought so hard to ensure that the person who received the most votes for the presidency in 2020 actually received our our electoral votes, you know, it was so difficult to do then. It is going to be even harder to do next time because there's a roadmap now for exactly how to undermine democracy in our state. And it's really going to take hard work on behalf of myself, on behalf of the secretaries of state and the other attorneys general in these swing states. And for these various, you know, boards of canvasser, for these various clerks, if they refuse to do their job properly, for the state board of canvassers, for all kinds of different instances, if you have bad actors that are not willing to do their job properly and are determined to make sure that they get the outcome they want, whether or not that's the outcome that the voters wanted, it's really going to take a lot of legal work. And that means I'm going to have to be filing case after case after case for things like, you know, writs of mandamus, where you go to the courts and you say, make this county board of canvassers do their jobs and certify the election or make this clerk do her job. And in the past, there just hasn't been a lot of attention paid to these down ballot races like secretaries of state and like attorneys general. But honestly, at this point, we are the threshold of whether or not we're going to maintain a democracy or not. Because as we know, it doesn't matter how many votes California votes in favor of, say, a Democrat who's running or how many New York does. It really comes down to not that many votes at all in the swing states. So in these swing states, it's incredibly important. And I will say in 2016, I mean, look at the difference. Trump won here by approximately 10,000 votes. You know, contrast that to in 2020, where Biden won by about 154,000 votes. But even though it was such a more narrow margin in 2016, no one thought to fail to certify the election. You know, there was a point I know that Jill Stein was requesting a recount, but that's different. The recount is a process that is provided for under the law, and it was requested in accordance with the law. But I mean, Trump never asked for a recount. Because I think it was well known, there's no way that you're going to find an extra 154,000 votes plus one. Well, that's what he asked for in Georgia, remember, with Cleta Mitchell, another conservative attorney sitting in the Oval Office talking to Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, said, I need 11,433 votes. That gets me over the, you know, Biden's 432 votes. That's true, but he did not ask for a recount, right? Well, no, he just wanted the votes to appear. Exactly. A magically appear as opposed to doing it the proper way and the legal way. And I think what bothers me a lot is this comparison. I'm sure there were a lot of people with the Lincoln Project that were in some way, shape or form involved with Bush v. Gore in 2000. Sure. I was in Florida for five weeks. But then you know that there's a complete difference when you hear the Sidney Powells of the world saying that, you know, her lawsuits are similar to that lawsuit. I think, you know, how incredibly misleading that statement is, because even though there was certainly a disagreement between the Bush team and the Gore team on what the law was that should be applied, there was not a disagreement on the facts. And in this case, you have a complete misrepresentation of both the law 
and the facts. And then it was a, an interpretation of the law. The request was to interpret the law in a certain manner. But in this instance, these are attorneys that completely misrepresented the facts, completely misrepresented the law, and demonstrated, you know, a willful ignorance of the facts and law or just intentionally misleading the court. And unfortunately, it just didn't end in the court. Obviously, you know, Sidney Powell and these other attorneys were harshly sanctioned in the Eastern District uh, of Michigan. And Judge Parker ordered something I've never, ever seen before, which is basically continuing education for the lawyers to learn how to draft a complaint and to learn about election law, because they demonstrated that they knew very little of either of those things. But I think the other part, too, about Florida in 2000, even though I was on the other side of that fight, I don't think that history probably gives him enough credit, is that then Vice President Al Gore conceded. He said, I may not agree with how this is working out, but the country, for the good of the country, somebody must concede defeat. And I will do that because we must move forward. Right. And he did that. It probably took every fiber of his being, you know, and I don't think anybody can blame him to say, you know what, for the good of the country, I have to do this. Yeah. And we've always seen that in terms of the peaceful transfer of power. And we saw that certainly with his father, George Herbert Walker Bush, when he lost, you know, he didn't contest it. In fact, I thought that he was so respectful of the principles of a peaceful transfer of power in giving up the highest office of the land because he acknowledged the fact that he lost the election. And that's what's always been done. And that's what makes America great, truly great, is the willingness to say, it was a hard fought fight, but you won. I lost. And now, and what most presidents have said, I wish you the best because the success of our nation is predicated on the success of our president. But we don't have that anymore, of course. I mean, that's long gone. And it's something you rarely hear anymore, unfortunately. And I think it has really diminished our standing across the globe as a democracy and as a nation. So let me ask you this. Let's stay in Michigan for a second. Next year, all of you, Governor Whitmer, you, Secretary Benson, will be up for reelection as every, I guess, either statewide or legislative office holder will be. And, you know, this is one of the concerns that has really popped in our head in the last month or so is that in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, that, you know, with Republican legislatures, if they were to capture the governor's mansion as well, you could have a ready-made constitutional crisis in which, to your point, the Democratic nominee in 2024, let's say it's President Biden, wins by 154,000 votes. But a Republican governor, Republican legislature, local canvassers, everything else say, now we're going to send our quote-unquote alternate slate of electors sort of throwing the grenade into the process and hoping for the best. And so how do you see next year going in the context of not only the Sydney Powell's of the world, but now you have elected officials who have either said explicitly or are indicating through their actions that, you know, regardless of what happens in 2024, maybe they'll just take the decisions into their own hands because based on the big lie of 2020, nothing can be trusted. Therefore, it's up to us. And this is what I think is important for people to know. I get it that not everyone is going to agree with Secretary Benson and myself and Governor Whitmer on every issue. But if you care about sustaining our you know, democratic republic in the United States, the road for that runs right through Michigan. And 
you know, without all three of us in office, I don't know how we are going to sustain a democracy for our state and for, as you suggested, that our slate of electors will properly go to the individual, receive the most votes for president. Because it just took so much work in 2020. I mean, the secretary and I were in contact almost all day, every day, because of the constant challenges before the election, the day of the election, because of all the threats that were made towards the polls. We thought there was going to be mass carnage at the polls. After the election, case after case, not just, of course, this case, but many, many others that we were constantly having to defend. And it took all three of us because the secretary, in addition to her many other functions, you know, she and the governor, they're the final ones that have to sign off on the true slate of electors. And without their signatures, it's not valid. And of course, I'm the one as attorney general that is going to have to fight to ensure, again, that the boards of canvasser do the right thing, that the clerks do the right thing, and also that the legislature does not try to undermine the process, which I'm very fearful that they will if they decide to do so. And I should say this, everyone remembers that Donald Trump, not only did he actually call the Republicans on the Wayne County Board of Canvassers and encourage them and got them to try to renege their votes to certify, which they were unable to do, but they tried. They filed affidavits to try to do that. He actually flew our Speaker of the House and our Senate Majority Leader to the Oval Office for a private meeting where during that time period, those individuals were, and some others who had come with them from the legislature, were berated by, of all people, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell, who were part of that meeting. And in trying to convince them to try to somehow have the legislature take a hold of the election and illegally submit a false slate of electors. And I should tell you, when we talk about how difficult it was to ensure the proper slate of electors was submitted, you know, you had this group of the Trump electors that coalesced outside the Senate the day of the vote and tried to basically break in to the Senate. The governor had to call hundreds and hundreds of Michigan state troopers to surround the state legislature, the Capitol building, so that the vote could occur because they tried to break in. And guess what? They sent a false slate of electors to the National Archivist and to Congress anyway. And so what people may or may not know, when Mike Pence was making that call to Dan Quayle, the unexpected savior of our democracy, and saying, do I have to do this? Do I have to count the Biden votes? There really was an alternative that was there because this false slate of electors had been sent by these individuals. And so I don't know that people understand just how precarious that situation was, but we were incredibly close to Mike Pence literally, you know, counting the wrong, the inaccurate slate of electors for various different states. And it absolutely could have happened. I'm glad he did the right thing at the end of the day, but it was a really precarious set of circumstances. Were the folks like the legislative leaders in Michigan, were these folks always like this? Was it always something latent in them? Or did they get swept up in the sort of idea of, you know, we have to stay in power? Are they afraid of their own activists? Are they afraid of Trump supporters? Not only 
legislative leaders in Michigan, but also so many of your fellow attorneys general who in the aftermath of the 2020 election, I think it was like 17 or 27 or whatever it was, signed on to, you know, Ken Paxton down in Texas, his bogus, you know, thing to the Supreme Court. They all knew it was crap. They all knew it was fiction, but they did it anyway. Was this just because they wanted to score some political points with their primary voters? I mean, is it that cynical? For a lot of them, it is that cynical. And first of all, in terms of that lawsuit, the Ken Paxton lawsuit, I wasn't surprised that Ken Paxton would do that. And I think it's important to note that even his solicitor general wouldn't take part in, in this. His SG division did not participate in that lawsuit, which is very unusual for a case that's filed before the United States Supreme Court. It was actually an outside counsel that filed that on behalf of the state of Texas. But I was so disappointed. I mean, he was under indictment. He clearly was looking for a pardon from Trump. He's still under indictment. He's still under indictment. And, you know, he is very beholden to Donald Trump. And of course, he's been endorsed by Donald Trump yet again. But in terms of the 17 other AGs that signed on, I was deeply disappointed. And I will say I've really sort of withdrawn from my participation with NAG, worst acronym in the world, the National Associations of Attorneys General, we used to be a pretty collegial group and really worked together on a number of different fronts, most recently the opioid settlements. But it's hard for me to sit next to someone who signed on to an effort to undermine the election in my state, even though they had to know that they were not on solid factual or legal grounds to do so. And so that's been a difficult thing for me to digest. I think each and every one of them violated their oaths of office by signing on to that. But in terms of my state, in terms of the people you're talking about, I don't think that they were always like this. I think that gerrymandering in our state has definitely contributed to it somewhat, you know, because our districts, you know, and this goes for both the, the left and the right. Let's face it, you know, when you are gerrymandered into a district, you appeal to your base, which is often the most right or the most left in that particular district, which is why I think gerrymandering has been done a, a deep disservice to our state and to our country. And why I'm hopeful in Michigan, things will be very different after 2022, because we have a, a new redistricting commission, a bipartisan redistricting commission drawing those maps. But what I've heard from many Republicans, and believe it or not, I do have relationships with many people across the aisle, and, and we do a lot of work together behind the scenes, but they're afraid of their own party at this point. And they know if they are to condemn Donald Trump, and if they do not subscribe, at least publicly, to the big lie, it is very unlikely they will survive a primary. Very unlikely. And so it's their political futures. And the people who have decided to contest that, and the people who have not gone along with the big lie, you see many of them not even running for office again, because they know they have no hope of surviving a primary. Well, and let me ask you this, because in their official capacity, so many of the Republican attorneys general signed on to this bogus lawsuit. And then on the political side of things, RAGA, the Republican Attorneys General Association, was caught funneling money into different organizations and different activities around the stuff that happened on January 6th. So it's not only in their official capacities do they seem to have totally abandoned, you know, not only their oaths, their duty and the sort of concept of representative democracy, but they also have their political wing doing it. Although all of them are like, well, we had no idea what they were doing. That's like, well, you know, I didn't know the guys that helped me fund my campaign were, you know, stealing the money. Like it's, there's only so much you can say you didn't know about. It's not just the parties. 
But now you have the legal wings, right? And friend of the show, Lauren Windsor, had John Eastman caught on video this week. At first, he wrote this memo saying that Pence could do these things. Then he goes to the National Review and other people and says he can't do it. And then he goes on, you know, hidden camera and says, oh, yeah, you know, we could have worked it out, except Pence was, quote, too establishment a guy. So now even the, quote, unquote, conservative legal scholars seem to be, you know, playing fast and loose with the Constitution. Let me tell you how much worse it is than you even probably think or know. After the events of January the 6th, the Democratic Attorneys General Association, you know, were split 50-50 in terms of Republican versus Democratic AGs. And we tried to come together with the Republican Attorneys General, not, I think, knowing at that point the part that Raga had played in the events of January 6th, to have a joint letter that we wanted every single attorney general in the nation sign on to, state attorney general sign on to, condemning the acts of January 6th at our nation's capital, and we were unable to get the Republicans to sign on. These are the top law enforcement officials of all 50 states in America, and we could not get the Republican AGs to sign on to a letter condemning the violence and the insurrection at the Capitol. And that's when I knew they're too far gone now. If they can't even condemn that, I don't know what to say, and I don't know how I'll actually work with them in the future, which is unfortunate because we really do need to work together on so many different important issues that, you know, cross state lines and affect all of us in each of our respective states. But it's hard to know, how do I work with people who try to undermine democracy in my state? How do I work with people that don't see anything wrong with the events of January 6th? How do I work with people that see all of the illegal activities by the former president of the United States and his willingness to not just bend, but to break statute after statute, constitutional provision after constitutional provision, and they're unwilling to speak out against that? I don't know how we can come together as a nation moving forward because, you know, they're just too beholden. Instead of the principles of our Constitution, they are now just beholden to one man. And that's something I've never I never imagined that I would see. Well, and, you know, speaking of, you know, law enforcement, Michigan is a pretty divided state as far as politics are concerned. You know, it's got some very blue areas. It's got some solid purple areas. It's also got some very red areas. I hate to break everything down so superficially. What you saw at the state capitol in Michigan last year, the threat against Governor Whitmer's life that the FBI caught on to, how much does political violence concern you in the next 12 months? I am incredibly, deeply concerned about it. In fact, in, in 2018, I created a hate crimes division in the office, which, you know, you should know the Republicans in the legislature were very upset, which was I was very much taken aback by it because we have a hate crimes law that's been on the books for over 30 years in Michigan. And it was actually co-sponsored by, you know, liberal stalwarts like John Ingler, you know, our former Republican governor and Connie Binsfield, you know, who was in the legislature for long. I mean, there were many Republicans 30 years ago that thought it was a good thing to have a hate crimes law on the books. And then by the time I took office, that had fallen out of favor and they didn't want me to prosecute hate crimes anymore. But I had to expand this division of the office to hate crimes and domestic terrorism because we were seeing so many acts of domestic terrorism and planning of acts of domestic terrorism. And you know, the thing to know about Michigan that we're fortunate about is that we actually have very powerful 
domestic terrorism laws on the books that allow us to prosecute people for those offenses, federally, those laws don't exist. So that's why, again, it's very important in, in a state where we've seen extremism on the rise and so many of these militia organizations, anti-government, white supremacy organizations come into being and have their membership escalate and rise exponentially. You know, it's important to have an attorney general here who is willing to take them on because as we learned from the Oklahoma City bombing, what happens in Michigan doesn't always stay in Michigan. And of course, that event was planned by the Michigan militia. The difference was in the 1990s, both the Republicans and the Democrats came together to call out domestic terrorism and to fight against it. And that's not the case anymore. So what you have now is you have one party, the Republican Party in our state, that is willing to actually stand on a stage together with individuals that are plotting to kidnap and execute the governor of our state. And our majority leader in the Senate, Mike Shirky, proudly stood on a stage with the Null brothers, who were later indicted for being part of this plot and when you saw armed gunmen take over our state capitol on April the 30th of 2020, you saw, again, Mike Shirky and other Republicans go to them and sit down with them and have conversations with them. And even Mike Shirky take them behind closed doors to speak with them and proudly indicate to the world that he was working with those groups and that he was helping them with their messaging, whatever the hell that means. And that's terrifying to me that you would have one political party that seemingly was supporting individuals involved in anti-government activities when these are our representatives from the government. And the thing that I've tried to convey to whatever extent I can to the Republicans in our legislature is this. When you are part of an anti-government militia organization, you're anti-all government not just anti-democratic, not just anti-democrats. And if they start shooting from the Senate gallery onto the floor of the Senate, believe me, they're not only trying to shoot the Democrats. No, it's they're anarchists. Exactly. And we know how anarchy turns out typically. So let me ask you this, and let me just say this before we move on. There's a goon named Charlie Kirk who runs this group called Turning Point USA, which is sort of like the breeding ground for the young white ethno-nationalist. And in his conference earlier this week, there was a guy who got up and asked a question and said, when do we get the guns? When do we start shooting these people? Now, Kirk quickly tried to disavow the guy. But the point is, if, first of all, the crowd cheered when this guy asked the question. And it just indicates, you know, the kinds of people who are coming together. And as you know, General, it only takes a very few people willing to conduct violence to encourage, you know, the mass of people to stay home, not to participate because it's fear, right? It's all based in fear. And speaking of based in fear, so earlier this month, there was a Texas state rep named James White who wrote a letter to Ken Paxton, who we mentioned earlier, questioning the legitimacy of the 2015 court decision in Obergfell versus Hodges, which legalized same-sex marriage in the U.S., White's claim is that the Texas Constitution defines marriage between a man and a woman and has never been amended. Therefore, Texas doesn't have to observe the law of the land. This is my take on that. And obviously, you have personal and professional experience at the very front lines of this fight. My opinion is, is that Representative White is not smart enough to have come up with this on his own, that this is part of a larger sort of culture war that the Republican Party is injecting. We've already seen it with critical race theory and other things. 
and with abortion and with SB8 in Texas. Here's my concern. They're doing this because they want somebody to file a federal lawsuit in Texas, goes to the Fifth Court of Appeals in New Orleans, which, as you know, is a very conservative court. Then we'll go to the Supreme Court and we'll be having, you know, potentially, you know, it's a 6-3 conservative court. We'll have this now a culture war issue before voters across the country. I mean, first of all, I mean, if the Supreme Court lays down the law of the land, it's the law of the land for all 330 million Americans, all 50 states, all of our territories, protectorates, et cetera, et cetera. So like they're just basically saying, F you, we don't want to do it. Pardon my French general. How do you see this both as a, again, someone who upholds the law of your state, but also someone who literally lives this every day? Well, first of all, if that's going to be the attitude, for instance, of the state of Texas, they might as well go ahead and secede from the union. Because quite honestly, if, if the Supreme Court, their decisions and their opinions are not the law of the land, then I don't know why we have a federal judiciary in the first place that ostensibly their rulings impact all 50 states. So, you know, for instance, in Michigan, there are so many laws on the books that were just never repealed, but are unenforceable. So we have a marriage ban on our books, but you can't enforce it because of Obergefell. We have an abortion ban. It makes it a four-year felony. A 1931 law makes it a felony for a medical provider to provide an abortion to a woman still on the books, uh, just unenforceable. We have sodomy laws on the books. Most states do. There are often still laws outlawing, you know, marriage between an African-American and a white person or anybody and a white person, right? That's right. And those laws were just never repealed. So if that's the attitude we're going to have, why bother having a United States Supreme Court in the first place? That's the entire purpose. So that when there are conflicts in the law, especially when there are differences between the circuits, you know, they decide what the law of the land is. But I will say this, in the, in, in the Mississippi case that is now pending before the United States Supreme Court, which many people predict will actually spell the demise of Roe v. Wade, there were amicus briefs that were filed where there were requests made to not just overturn Roe v. Wade, but because there's this whole line of cases that involve right to privacy. So we're talking about Roe. We're talking about Obergefell v. Hodges. We're talking about Lawrence v. Texas involving the sodomy laws. We're talking about Griswold v. Connecticut, which allows people to buy contraceptives in their state so that states cannot ban the purchase or the dispensing of contraceptives. I mean, all of those could fall like dominoes. So do I see Obergefell being challenged at some point and likely soon? Absolutely, I do. And remember, it was a very divided court that decided that even Justice Roberts, who is now seen as the peacemaker, the moderate on the court, he authored his own dissent. Anthony Kennedy is gone. Ruth Bader Ginsburg is gone. I mean, these people have been obviously replaced with people who never in a million years would have voted with the majority in that decision and believed that marriage was a fundamental right or that to deny same-sex couples the right to marry violated the Equal Protection Clause and the Due Process Clause. Never in a million years would they make that finding. And I think that they are more than willing to overturn Obergefell, and honestly, many other important cases as well. But if you're talking about just having the Fifth Circuit make a decision, the concern here is you look at the Texas abortion law and for the Fifth Circuit to say, no, we can go ahead 
and proceed as though Roe doesn't exist. And for the United States Supreme Court to say, we're going to pretend that never happened. And we're going to allow this very bizarre law that also questions what does standing even mean anymore? If generally speaking, it has always been the law that you need to have standing as a party to bring in action, but you can be any random person from anywhere, from anywhere and decide that because someone had an abortion, anyone in any way, shape or formed, no matter how far removed from that abortion, someone who just happens to provide a ride through, you know, Lyft or Uber to an abortion clinic can be sued and can be fined $10,000 for that. It just undermines all of our principles of jurisprudence. And so I think when you look at the politicalization of the United States Supreme Court, this one case by itself, I mean, forget the understanding that we've had of, you know, stare decisis and that once you have a principle of law, you just don't overturn it the very next day. That's the whole idea of precedent, right? Which is like, it's got to be a really big deal to overturn it. But I think they're willing to overturn all kinds of cases that we come to acknowledge as important over the course of the last several decades. And, you know, it is part of a larger culture war, but that's why those particular justices were selected because of their willingness to do that. Look, the 6-3 court didn't happen overnight, right? It was a 40-year deal. Right. It was, it was a lot of planning. And frankly, the Republicans definitely outplanned the Democrats when it came to the bench, when it came to the federal judiciary, and when it came to our state courts as well. And the Democrats have a lot of catching up to do. Well, and I think it's also because Republicans of today, they know that how they see the world is not in line with how most Americans see themselves or where the culture is. So they feel like they have to lock it in through a judiciary. And remember, they don't want people legislating from the bench unless it's their people legislating from the bench. But let me add one last question on SB8 in Texas, which is this idea that you went back to the, you know, the idea of standing, but it's also like turning every Texan into a potential vigilante. And that's a state sanctioned idea. I mean, as an attorney general, does that boggle the mind? Does it make sense? It just, it seems to me to be very sort of East German 1956 thinking when it comes to this stuff. Well, it's absolutely terrifying. And let me apply that to something that's happening here in Michigan. We have a quote unquote constitutional sheriff on the west side of our state, Barry County Sheriff Darleaf, who proudly boasts about training people to perform citizens' arrests. And whether that's on school board members who issue mask mandates or whether it's on public health officials in their work to combat COVID. Can you imagine that you have a county elected sheriff that is training people to, we don't have citizens arrest in Michigan, by the way, that's not a real thing, that's a fiction. So he's basically training people to perform what is an illegal act and giving them sort of the legal authority behind it to do that by saying, well, it's the county sheriff telling us to do that, it must be okay. Well, in this case, it's the state legislature of Texas telling people to be vigilantes and you yourself personally go after anyone who has had anything to do with a, a medical procedure that should be between a woman and her doctor. But now it's your business, too. I ran a sheriff's race several years ago. And as you know, General, when it comes to sheriffs, they're really only answerable to two people, which are the voters and God. It's a unique vestigial position from I don't know if it was England or wherever maybe in early America, right, where counties were huge and 
disconnected and sparsely populated, right? That the sheriff was the law of that particular land. But now that's what you're seeing, right? Even the sheriff of Los Angeles said, well, I'm not going to enforce a vaccine mandate on my 35,000 officers, et cetera, et cetera. We saw the one in, uh, there's a guy in Polk County, Florida, who said like, don't move here from New York or California and think you're going to bring your values with you. And my concern, you know, talking about that particular sheriff there in Michigan or other sheriffs is that, you know, let's say at a polling place, and this is where, you know, we often go to the worst possible outcome. And unfortunately, we keep being right, is that if there's a polling place where there are, quote unquote, poll watchers harassing people in line and a sympathetic sheriff to that particular perspective, that they're just going to have their deputies stand there that they're not going to do anything about it. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But that really concerns me. Well, it concerns me, too. And we were prepared for that in 2020. And whether it was utilizing the Michigan State Police or, you know, I mean, in my department, I mean, we have 50, 60 special agents. It's hardly enough for a state of over 10 million people to ensure the safety of poll workers. But, you know, we saw that even during the start of COVID, you had sheriffs that even during the time period when the courts were saying that the governor's executive orders were absolutely legal and constitutional, you had sheriffs all over the state who just came out immediately and said, I'm not going to enforce any of that. And I think it really led to the rise of the spread of COVID. And our state now has over 21,000 people who have died of COVID. I think many, many of those people, unnecessarily so, you had sheriffs, even if they weren't going to enforce the law, don't come out and say immediately, hey, everybody, I'm definitely not enforcing the law. I mean, even if you're not going to have speed traps as a police officer and you're not going to pull people over for speeding, you don't broadcast the fact that you're not going to pull people over for speeding because that will only lead to people speeding, you know, because they know that there's nobody out there that's going to hold them accountable. So the fact that so many sheriffs in our state took that position, I think, was very, very dangerous and damaging. And a lot of people died because of it. Well, listen, all we can do is hope that if we do have better angels of our nature, that they start reappearing here on Earth sooner than later. General, before I let you go, where can our listeners find you on social media? Well, let's see, they can uh, follow me on Twitter, which is just at Dana Nessel. And I like to think I have a decent Twitter game <laughs> here and there, you know. Um, I'm also on Facebook and I have an Instagram account, although being a Gen Xer, I don't get Instagram. I'm just going to say it. Well, listen, Attorney General Dana Nessel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. And as always, everybody, you can always follow me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And until next time, we'll see you soon. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. 
see you on the next episode. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.